Genesis 17. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Genesis 17. Uh, the last few weeks we've been examining Abraham's relationship with God to see what can we learn about how we are to relate to God ourselves. And what we see in the scriptures is that we relate to God by faith. We relate to God by trusting him, trusting specifically his promise to redeem us, to redeem our life. And now it's great that God has made a promise to redeem us from death, but at some point in uh, our relationship with God, we wonder, how is he going to do it? I mean, does God have a plan to do this? What is the plan? you got to remember, uh, if you've been with us from the beginning of this uh, series, it's been 24 years since God made this promise to Abraham. Remember that? 24 years. That's a long time. And today is the big reveal. He's kind of having a reveal party today. So uh, we're going to read verses, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 and truck on down to verse 27. And then we'll pray. All right. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him, and I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that very day. Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with, with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence uh, Seeking your face, 
seeking a word from you. We've come to worship you, the creator, the one true God. And God, just to be honest with you, I, since you're here, I am humbled to be in your presence, God. Um, thank you. I'm just reminded this morning that, frankly, you don't need me. Uh, you can use anyone. Uh, but it's just so wonderful that you get to use uh, me to speak your word. You get to use us as your people. Uh, your plan is perfect. And you plan for everything. <laughs> God, I just pray that this morning you would speak. And right now that you would cause us to hear from you. You would cause us to listen to what you have to say to Crossway. And God, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers. We would show our faith through obedience. We would show our trust today through obeying you. So God, start doing your work right now uh, in us. And we thank you and praise you for your great power. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, uh, they had these books that they had made called Choose Your Own Adventure. A anybody know those or read those, Choose Your Own Adventure? I read, I read one or two of those. Uh, basically, if you're not familiar with that, as I just saw a lot of you are not, uh, the story starts out with ba uh, this basic plot line starts the story out. And they're written in the second person, okay? So you are the protagonist, okay, in the story. You're the main character, and they had all sorts of different adventures. They had uh, Journey Under the Sea, Mystery of Chimney Rock. Uh, I remember that Deadwood City was one uh, that I remember. So they had all these adventures, and in every adventure, there were different types of life-altering crises that you would come face-to-face -face with, basically. And uh, you had to make certain choices. You had to make decisions when you came to those crisis points at the bottom of the page. All right? You would choose how the story went. It would say something like, you know, if, if you put up energy repulsion shields and try to escape the black hole, then flip to page 22. So you'd flip to page 22, and it would change the story. And then you have another one. If you did this, then flip to page, you know, 45, and you would keep reading. In the first book, The Cave of Time, there were about 40 possible endings to that story, leading either to victory, alien invasion, Tyrannosaurus wreck attack, uh, well, there's unexpected ruin. It was a pretty amazing book. But the point is that you were the author of the story. You were the author of your own adventure, and you were the hero of every story. So you can kind of understand why these were very popular books, especially among kids. I mean, who doesn't want to believe that they are the one that writes the story of their life, right? I mean, like, sign me up. That sounds like a great deal. In fact, these books tap into something that runs very deep into every human heart. We want to write our own plan of redemption. In our relationship with God, life can take twists and turns, ups and downs. And like Abraham, we will experience these different crisis points, these different forks in the roads where we have to make decisions. 
And it can seem from our human perspective like God is just kind of making this thing up as it goes along. He's just kind of throwing things out there and see what works. Maybe we think we could come up with a better plan to redeem our life if we could kind of take the wheel for a little while. I mean, sure, God has made these great promises, and those are great. That's a great target he's put out there. He's going to redeem us. And yes, they're wonderful, but, but does he have a plan to make that reality, to accomplish that promise and that purpose? I mean, could he at least give me some options so I could jump to page 100 in my story real quick? Wouldn't it be great? You see, in order for us to trust him with our life, we need to know that God has more than a promise to redeem us. God has a plan. God has more than a promise to redeem us. He has a plan. Say that with me. God has a plan. Say it with me. God has a plan. We need to know that. Because this causes us to trust him when we understand that. God's plan to redeem us doesn't require assistance from us. Did you know that? We see this right here in the text in Genesis. God's plan to redeem us doesn't require assistance from us. Verse 17 and 18 in the text says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? I want you to get the story that we're in right now. Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said, so he's thinking that, but now he says something to God. He says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Up to this point, God has been making promises to Abraham and confirming them. But now God is starting to unfold the plan of redemption. How he actually plans to fulfill this epic, sweeping promise. How God will redeem Abraham and the world from the problem of sin and death. This is what he's unveiling to him. God is going to begin fulfilling his promise by using a man whose body is way past its prime and a woman who physically cannot conceive a child to produce a baby. They're not having a hard time having a child. Do you understand what I'm saying? They can't do it. They cannot do this. That is how Abraham's going to get a son? That's the plan? That's how the world's going to get a redeemer? That's going to take a miracle. <laughs> Right? Well, that's the point. That is the point. God plans to accomplish the wonderful through the impossible. Abraham responds to God by putting forth his own plan of redemption. Ishmael. Hey, God, don't have to go through all that trouble. Here's my son, and he's here. I don't have to wait. And that makes sense. This is easier. There is a desire deeply rooted in each one of our hearts to be our own Redeemer. Do you know what I'm talking about? Tim, do you know what I'm talking about? We want that, don't we? 
In every situation that we find ourselves in, we want to save ourselves from the brokenness and from the meaninglessness that we experience on a regular basis in our life. We constantly put forth to God our plan for redemption, and it looks pretty good. It looks good. We think to ourselves, or maybe we can say, you know what, I, I will make my life matter. I will redeem my life. You know what? If I can just keep my job for the next 10 years and lock in that pension, and my body can hold out till retirement, I, you know what? That'll be good. That'll be a meaningful life. You know what? I'll redeem my life by being an excellent parent with children that are well-educated, and they obey me. My every word. And they make me feel loved every day because they will see how wonderful a parent I am and how much I love them. You see, that'll prove it. That'll prove I'm not a bum like my dad thinks I am. That'll prove that I'm not a bum like I think I am. I'll redeem my life. I will make it matter now. I can do that. Sometimes for us in our conversations with people, we can believe that redemption comes by proving that our perspective, that's the right one. And it's more important for us to prove our point of view than to listen and understand someone else's point of view. Say, i got to be the smartest person in the room, and you need to know that about me. I'm right. I'll just be honest with you guys. Uh, for me, that can make sure that me making sure that I say the right things, that I say the things that people like, and I avoid saying the things that I know people won't like. If I could get people happy, keep them happy, if I can make sure that everybody stays, then I'm a winner, and I'm good. And maybe God looks good too, so it's a win-win. But the truth is, you know what? That's just, that's just Lingle trying to be his own redeemer. And it's kind of wicked, isn't it? You know what? We all do this. We all do this. And blessed is the one that knows that <laughs> and admits that, right? We all put forth our own Ishmael, our own plan of redemption, of fulfilling this promise to God. And we say, here's my plan, God. This will work. God, bless my plan. God, bless my plan. It will still give you glory, and it makes sense to me. So redeem my situation, redeem my job, redeem my family, redeem my marriage my way. But you know what the scriptures teach us today? The scriptures are telling us that God's plan of redemption is not our plan of redemption ultimately. Yeah, sometimes they cross paths and interlock. But ultimately, it's his way. God is doing the wonderful through the impossible. Now, why that way? Why is God going to do it that way? Uh, I'm not sure. Can I say that? I'm not sure. But here's one reason that I think that he has decided to do it that way. God wants to prove to us that he doesn't need any help from us in order to redeem us. Let me say that again. God doesn't need 
any help from us in order to redeem us. And he wants to prove that to us. He wants to show that to us for our good. For our good. We add nothing to our salvation. Nothing. It's entirely a work of God's grace. And we actually need to know that and believe that. In fact, it says this in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, the gift from God, not a result of works. Why? Purpose statement. So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. You and I were wired to brag. So we're going to brag about God. God didn't say don't brag. He says just don't brag about you. Isn't that weird? Boast about him. I was always taught don't boast. Actually, it's, you just got to get it in the right direction. That's what God says. You see, this plan of redemption is a blessing to us because it prevents us from concentrating on our performance. Yeah, we need to glance at that. Yeah, we need to check that. And we're going to get to that later in the message. But it's that it keeps us from concentrating on it. See, when we concentrate on how awful we perform, we get depressed. I don't know about you, but I do. When we concentrate on how awful we perform, we get depressed. When we concentrate on how awesome we perform, we get arrogant. But when we place our faith in God and we concentrate on how God alone redeems us despite our performance, and it makes us want to praise Him. It makes us want to sing to Him and thank Him and live with Him. God's plan to redeem us is deliberate. So we'll trust him when we know that his plan to redeem us is deliberate. Let's go back to the text, verse 19 through 21. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him, his grandkids. He's not even born, and God's talking, saying he's going to have grandkids. That's kind of cool. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is getting pretty specific, isn't it? This is before sonograms. God knows. God knows. Not only does God start to reveal how he's going to redeem his people, he gives them some pretty specific details in this part of the passage. Sarah's going to give birth herself to a boy child, and his name will be Isaac. God will establish his covenant with him, not Ishmael, and God reveals that he will do this before Isaac's even conceived. Not born, even conceived. God has a plan. So Abraham says, hey, choose Ishmael to accomplish your plan. God says, I will bless him. But I'm choosing Isaac to accomplish my plan of 
redemption. God is very deliberate about how he will bring salvation. He is not crafting this plan as he goes along. God is not just throwing things together, and he's certainly not working by a committee. I mean, God talks like he's the only, only one in the room. Doesn't he? It's amazing. God says that he will save his people by the son of his choosing. To quote that hymn of Martin Luther, our mighty fortress is our God. The son of his own choosing. The son, not born of the flesh, but by the miracle son. Hmm. The son born of God, so to speak. Isaac. Although Ishmael is close, he's not exactly the one. Uh, I don't know, some of you may remember this. Uh, back in the, the 90s, Hertz has a series of these commercials about their rental car company, about how customers can trust their car and their car service. You guys remember those commercials at all? At all? Well, there was one where this wife asked a series of questions about the car that her husband, he's a bumbling husband, he rented, and it's for their trip, vacation trip, all right? They're going to go take a road trip in this rental car. So she asked him these questions. She's like, well, are, are they as fast as Hertz? And he says, mm, not exactly. Do they offer roadside assistance like Hertz does? Well, not exactly. Do they offer computerized directions? Not exactly, he says. Then the commercial ends with the family lost. And the spokesperson says, you know, in the car company world, there's Hertz, and then there's not exactly. Isaac is exactly the son that God has chosen to begin his rescue plan. For humanity and Isaac points us true to the true fulfillment of that plan that has come in Jesus Christ. Christ was all that Isaac was and more. Way more. Jesus was the true miracle baby. Jesus was the one truly born of God. Jesus was the one and only son that God chose to save us. And there is great comfort for us, family. Great comfort for us in knowing that God's plan is specific. It is detailed and it is deliberate. Jesus wasn't just some random guy that God picked for us to trust with our life. He wasn't just the most convenient option that was available for God. God makes options. He doesn't pick from some options. This is how it will be, God says. It wasn't like Jesus was like the most obedient person on earth that God can find and say, yeah, okay, I'll anoint him and bless him. He'll work. That's not how this happened. Jesus is exactly the redeemer God chose to save us. And get this, this has been his plan since before time began. Now let that blow your mind. Look at this, 1 Peter 1.20. He, Christ, was foreknown. That's covenant language. That means he knew him. He chose him. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. 
but was made manifest, made visible, made put out there so you could see it. But he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That's Peter's emphatic way of saying it was for your sake. He wants you to know this because he wants you to take comfort in this. God sovereignly designed it this way to bring him maximum glory and you and I maximum comfort. God gets the glory because in Christ we can see that his redemption worked out exactly the way that God planned it down to the smallest detail. He left no stone unturned. Nothing was left to chance. Nothing was left to chance. If you're not sure about those deliberate details, you ought to flip through 53rd chapter of Isaiah sometime. Isaiah 53. And just go down all those details and Jesus just ticks them off. Ticks those boxes of what the Messiah will be. We also get comfort knowing that we have placed our trust in exactly the right Redeemer. There isn't another one that we need to look for. We can be certain. We can be sure. He's the one. God's plan is not a series of accidents of people messing up and Him fixing it. You understand what I'm saying? God has a plan. He is working His plan and we can trust Him. We can trust Him. God's plan is not just deliberate, but His plan to redeem us demands a response. It demands a response. Did you know that? Let's go back to the text. Verse 26. This is actually repeated twice for emphasis. Verse 26 says, That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Now, I want you to notice that there is no delay between God revealing how he is going to rescue the world and Abraham's obedience. The lag time is very, very short. You understand what I'm saying? God's gracious plan to redeem and redeem and Abraham responds to that pretty quickly. He responds with obedience. Now, you and I, we can't see Abraham's faith, can we? Faith's invisible, right? His trust, we can't see his trust. Ah, but what can we see? His obedience, right? We can see him doing this. That is how faith becomes sight. Trust and obey. They always go together. Some things always go together, right? Peanut butter and jelly goes together, right? Salt and pepper, they go together. Trust and obey. You can't separate those two. You can't separate those two. I can't separate them. They go together. Faith and action. This is what God expects of you and I as well. In light of God's plan to redeem our dead lives through Christ, in light of God's gracious desire to rescue us from the penalty of our rebelliousness, even though we don't deserve it, that should change something inside of us. It should, it should change something from the inside out in each one of us that claims that we have faith in God, that we are a believer in God. We should be so overwhelmed by God's love and His kindness that we actually 
get this, want to obey him. Like we actually, like you want to obey God. You're not like, oh gosh, I gotta obey that first commandment. I don't want to, but like, okay, yeah, I want to. Let's go. The idea that we could truly, actually trust in the God who redeems us and not want to obey him is complete nonsense. It doesn't even make sense. It's a foreign idea to the writers of the scripture, in fact. Obedience is trust made visible. James talks quite a bit about this, actually. I'm not just shooting from the hip, guys. Look at this, uh, James chapter 2. But someone will say, so he's putting together kind of like this, this uh, hypothetical uh, argument or debate he's having here. Well, someone will, someone will say this. Well, you have faith and I have works and kind of like everyone has their own thing, right? You've got faith, I've got works, and he responds by this. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works, which is exactly what Abraham is doing. You believe that God is one? Oh, well, you do well. You do well. That's what he's saying right here. Good for you. You believe there is a God and he's one. Even the demons believe that. Demons got great systematic theology. And they shudder about it. it. Makes them nervous. That's how much they know. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Where does he go? Genesis. So much of the Bible centers around Genesis, doesn't it? Have you guys figured that out yet? People talk a lot about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We'll get there in a few weeks. You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. It was shown to be true and genuine. One of the evidences that we have saving faith in God or that we've really actually grabbed a hold of his promise to redeem our life is that we obey him. In other words, our obedience to God does not put us in a covenant relationship with God. But it is evidence that we're truly in a covenant relationship with God. And Abraham's kind of the protege of that. I'll give an example. Every time that you and I, every time you know, we obey God, we obey the Spirit of God that lives in us, and we do what He says to do, whether that's confessing a sin to someone, or whether that's stepping up to serve in an area that needs your help, or whether it's making peace with a person that really just kind of grinds on your nerves because they hurt you. Whatever that may be, these are not actions that bring you into a right relationship with God. They are actions that come from being in a right relationship with God. Obedience is the evidence that there actually is a relationship there at all. That's effective. It's happening. Now, the thing is, we still are stuck with this question, though. How can we tr trust and obey? But how, See, trust comes first, though, right? That's what initiates it. So how can we trust that God's plan to redeem our life is better than our plan? That it actually will work? That it's effective in what it's planned to do? I mean, our plans for our marriage, 
our ministry, our job, our health, they seem really great. They seem like they could work and that God could actually use that plan if he really wanted to. What gives us the power to trust that God's plan to redeem us is better than Christ's plan, better than our plan? And the answer is that only the gospel of Jesus gives you and I that kind of power. The gospel's everything, guys. That's why we talk about the gospel every week. The gospel is everything. And it's the only thing that gives us the power to have that kind of trust in the Lord. Only when we see Jesus doing for us what we could not do for ourselves will we trust him with our life. Will we truly be able to obey him? Only when we see Jesus doing that will we obey him. Abraham, like us, he said, you know what, Lord? Not your will, but mine be done. Right? And Jesus comes along and goes, what does he say? Not your will, not, not, not my will, but yours be done. He offers himself up to the Father. Jesus trusted the Father's plan, get this, unto death. Just hours before the plan was going to be fulfilled, he's right on the edge. He's in the garden. It's about to, it's about to be, come to fruition. He has that conversation with the Father. Jesus fell on his face, not with laughter, though, but with tears of agony. Amen? Do you see he's the true and better Abraham? He did it. Jesus did it. He asked the question that we ask in that moment. Is there another way? God, could we rewrite the story? Choose your own adventure, right? He asks the question that you and I ask. He identifies with our weakness, Crossway. He identifies with our weakness, but get this. He does not succumb to it like you did, like I did. He both identifies with our weakness and refuses to succumb to our weakness. Christ entrusts the plan for his life to the Father. Where we stop short in our journey of trusting God, Jesus finished all the way to the end. He finished that race. He endured all the way. Not 90%. Jesus went 100. Amen? Christ knew the only way that you and I could be redeemed from death is if he trusted the Father unto death. Because he knew that you and I wouldn't trust the Father, so he did it for us. He trusted and obeyed for you. Yes, you. Yes, you. What is God calling you to do as an act of obedience to him? This plan of redemption demands a response. That our faith would be sight. So I've got to ask the question, what is God calling you to do as an act of obedience right now in your life? What is that? God does call his people to obey. 
Maybe he is telling you to let go of a dream you had. Maybe that's it. It's a good dream. It's a good expectation, but God is asking you to give it up and to trust him now, to trust him more as the one true God, the, the one that will redeem you. He's asking you to lay it aside, your plan, and just obey him. And maybe for you, it, is, it, it feels like he's asking you to die. And maybe you are wondering, how are you going to be able to trust him enough to obey? Faith in Christ is the only way, guys. That's the only thing that has the octane. You understand what I'm saying? It's the only thing that has the, um, the octane to let you trust him with your life. Faith in Christ. Look at Christ giving up not just his dream, but his life for you. For you. Look at Christ handing over the most precious thing that he had to death so that you and I could have life forever, so that you and I could be forgiven of our foulness and our rebelliousness. We are redeemed because Christ was willing to do what you and I were, would not do, could not do, just didn't want to do. And he said, I'll do it. And I'll do it for them. He trusted God's plan of redemption was perfect. It was perfect. What love. Huh? What a savior. What a savior. That is what gives us the power to trust him and his plan of redemption for our life. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Christ. And that's what gives us the power to do what we need to do for his good, for his good name, for his glory. And I pray that that may be true each and every one of us today, this week. I love you guys. I want to pray for you. God, you are a mighty God. The psalm says that your voice thunders like crashing waters. It booms and it summons the earth. Whoa. <laughs> and you don't have to shout to be really loud. God, I pray that you would be really loud in every heart right now. That you would shake us up. God, I pray that you would challenge us in our faith in you. Um, God, I pray that you would lead us to be a people that want to obey you. And however you say that would please you, we'd say, if it pleases you, then, then I will do it. I will go. Because we've looked at Jesus. We see, God, that you are not calling us to do something that you yourself have not already done for us. And you've done it in spades. You've done it times a hundred. Oh, what a great God you are. 
God, you have a plan. And you are working out your plan to the detail. And because of that, we know we can trust you with our life. We can trust you with everything in our heart. We can trust you, Lord. Would you help us do that? So just continue to speak to us today and speak to us throughout the days this week. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Amen.